Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are venturing to Hawaii. Oh, yay. I need some warm weather. <laughs> Me too. We are going to be talking with Michelle Stonis, who is a professor, okay. about her master's thesis on Hawaiian missionary wives. Oh, all right. Get, Get into this. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be epic. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Somebody's Wife and Hawaiian Missionary Wives. Yeah, I know nothing about this topic other than being a wife myself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is that is significant. A category? <laughs> a category of knowing. <laughs> okay, so tell me more. Okay, so um, Hawaii, the 50th state. The I did not know that. <laughs> oh, now you know. Um, I thought it was Alaska, but no. No, negatory. Um, so let's let us back up a little bit in time. Yeah. It's the imperial era in U.S. history, which okay. most people think is like the late 1800s, 1890s would be like a really good time to pinpoint because after the Amer- you know the Civil War is very preoccupying in American politics. And so after the war, people can start to think about expansion again. So So there's sort of all these things that I think in history get really glossed over um, that happen where we acquire a bunch more land uh, after that. And one of the biggest ones, which was a very short war, actually the Secretary of State uh, during this time was from New Hampshire, Secretary Hay. Um, he called the Spanish-American War a splendid little war because it was so short. But, like, you know, 3,000 people, Americans, died. But, you know, casual. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I like to think of it as, and this is maybe, like, a a way to explain this sort of time period to most students. Yeah. um, That once... Manifest Destiny had gotten the United States to acquire sea to shining sea. The United States begins to look beyond those, the beginning of those oceans at islands that are out further. Okay. And so sort of like the spreading of the eagle's wings. Ka! No? I think you've gone too far, but I'm with too you. Too far? Okay, cool. <laughs> um, both in Britain and in the States, there are this sort of, like, mindset. And um, people believe in, white people, I should say, believe in this idea of the white man's burden. And this comes from a British poet who wrote the poem, um, White Man's Burden, Um And he basically believes that, like, it is our responsibility as enlightened people or something to go spread our ways, our Anglo-Saxon Christian ways around the world. How cute. How cute. And in the States, this really results in the Spanish-American War, which was a war to if you want to like justify the war to help 
Cuba get independence from Spain. Okay. And because the Spanish were doing pretty horrible things in Spain, or in Cuba, sorry, putting Cubans into concentration camps mm-hmm. and, like, you know, lots of people died and it's it's a pretty horrible thing. Um, but, you know, this, the bonus is that Cuba will become an American protectorate and it will yeah, sort of, like, be under our, under our thumb for a while. And by taking on the Spanish, which is kind of like this dwindling empire, we can then get territories like Guam and Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And so Hawaii, unfortunately, gets kind of like caught up in the mix of all of this. And because at this time, it's really important for... um, you know, our military to have naval bases that they can stop at. So if we're going to go to war in the Philippines, which is... Yeah, we need somewhere closer. You know, Southeast Asia, we can't... It's hard to get ships from our naval base in San Francisco to the Philippines. So we need somewhere in between. And fun fact, there's a bunch of Americans already there. And so that's where this history, I think, really fits to, like, bring it in. And Um, sorry... Does the monarchy no longer exist? Yeah. So okay. when, so that brings us back to the 1890s. Um, the queen at the time is Queen Liliokalani. She is the last... Like nailed how to pronounce that. Good for you. <laughs> uh, she is the last of the Hawaiian monarchy. And um, first of all, she's the only woman, fr- Polynesian woman, mentioned in any of the state standards. So that's, I think, interesting. And oh. it's it's really kind of like classic how U.S. history treats indigenous right. people. It's like when white people bump up to indigenous people, then we talk about, then it. We talk about it. So Queen Liliokalani is the queen of Hawaii, of the islands of Hawaii, when the United States wants to acquire Hawaii as essentially this massive naval base for for our navy right to so that we can continue on to the Philippines and to Guam yep. and to defend these new territories that we've that we've acquired from yeah. Spain um and and so she's sort of in the way and queen liliokalani is um basically asked to give up her spot she says no and they the US military surrounds her um mansion and what? basically under threat is required to like sign the necessary documents to surrender Hawaii. I mean, her choices are basically do we go to war with the United States or do we just surrender? surrender? And so it's not a like it's this is not a she she doesn't the situation is terrible. Yeah. And following her surrender, she's actually under house arrest for a very long time. She petitions to the president of the United States for years. Um, and it's not until the 90s. Stone, Michelle Stonis is going to talk about this. Um, Wait, the 1990s? The 1990s. So 100 what? years later, Bill Clinton apologizes for how she was treated. And that's important that it was acknowledged that this was a forcible overthrow of a a government of a government of a queen the end of the monarchy of hawaii but um you know so what do we what do we do 
like how but that, yeah. but Hawaii's still a state so like what are we doing here like what does that mean so um, Queen Liliuokalani mm-hmm. is a very awesome uh, topic in American history and there are lots of really great lesson plans that people have already made on her and we've got a bunch up okay, on our website cool. right. but what people haven't talked about are the First of all, there are other Hawaiian queens that are really cool, and oh, Michelle Stone well, talks about that. And um, and then, of course, there are white women coming over as missionaries in the years prior to this. So it's not like when the U.S. military arrives at Hawaii, Hawaiians have like never seen white people before, right? <laughs> well, like no, that. yeah. And so so there's this long history of like Captain Cook and with the, with the English, and um, but then of course Christians coming over to Christianize the Hawaiian people, and so. Th- I feel so privileged because I learned so much about this from her that I'd never that, that I'd never heard about. Um, so awesome. let us start by having her introduce herself. Great. I'm Michelle Stonis. I teach U.S. history and U.S. women's history at Glendale Community College near Los Angeles. I'm on the tenure track. And I'm also a co-director and co-founder of a new program we're starting on campus with the Pulitzer Center Campus Consortium to focus on helping students to research gender. So that and that program that you're starting for uh, researching gender, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it's actually part of a two-year $20,000 grant. We are the first community college in the entire state of California to be part of the Campus Consortium. Um, Other colleges that are part of the campus consortium include Georgetown and Yale and community colleges throughout the country. And it was just a great synergy between our journalism and history programs uh, to start bringing in education about gender for students who want to be reporters and need to have that context, right? As we see with journalism right now, um, right? If you're writing about social activism, you're writing about how women are treated in Hollywood, you're writing about the history of sexual assault, you need to know the history. It's not that past. And so we're, we're kind of joining forces to educate students and give them this really great opportunity. That's really awesome. How cool. So today we're going to talk about your research for your dissertation. And it was on women's history. And do you want to tell everybody a little bit about that to get us started? Sure. So when I was in grad school, um, I needed a project uh, for a specific class that had to do with global history. And I was just looking for a topic for a paper. And I was part of an evangelical background. And I had been a missionary myself. And through going to uh, the Dominican Republic and Southern India and Mexico, I had been a part of something bigger, but also seen some things that didn't quite make sense to me. And so my professor at the time uh, recommended that I could choose missionaries in Hawaii because it was count as a global topic without having to go too much into a topic that was in another language or or a place I wasn't um, necessarily interested in. So the topic really stood out to me because I got to start looking at the conception of gender. And the more I started studying it, the more curious I was, and it just grew into something bigger that I had some questions about. That's awesome. And were they pretty supportive of, I've talked to a few people who in pitching their research didn't kind of met resistance and were they pretty supportive of your research? I think they were. Um, 
ironically, we had a faculty member who had uh, done her undergrad research at Harvard on missionaries in Hawaii. So she was able to argue that it was still a pertinent topic, right? As historians and history teachers, we need to remember we're also part of a broader social cultural movement of how history is studied. And at least at that particular time, studying religious history was kind of on the way out. Um, I think we can see with what's happened at the Capitol recently, right, that knowing the history of religious influence in our country and how religion factors into politics, into movements is really important. Um, because my research focused more on gender, um, I was able to kind of skirt around the idea that we were just talking about religion. Um, we're talking about colonization, religious practices and imperialization. So those were really big topics that um, kind of anchored my work more than just religion. So then, of course, I asked her the question that we always ask, which is, why is this not being taught? And I think on a very simple level, the answer could be something like, these women are coming over as wives. So they're not coming over as the missionaries themselves. And therefore, they kind of get erased because they're not the ones being recorded. Okay. Um, but I think she gives a much, she gets into more of the important nuances of that. So this is what she said. I, I want to say, I think there's something else going on there. Right. And I think I was just watching a small clip, um, from Annette Gordon Reed and she was in a different context because she was talking about slavery and the idea of teaching slavery and, and what you should be covering. And she had this great quote where she said, you know, with a nation that was founded on the idea of freedom and freedom for everyone, we have a really hard time as a people researching and learning and admitting that we've also been a people, a country that's taken freedom away. And I, I think maybe, you know, also, too, if you haven't learned this topic and you go on to write a book or you haven't learned this topic and you go on to be an editor at a textbook company, it may not even be on your radar, but it really should. I mean, a little bit of trivia, right? Like this is, you know, you're ever on Jeopardy. This is the only monarchy that's part of U.S. history, right? And this idea of the United States government, including its military and then with the cultural erosion of the missionaries, I'm going to talk about the United States annexed a country that 97% of Native Hawaiians did not want to be annexed, did not want to be Americans. So I think this is a really relevant topic, not only in history, but now. Like, what do we do with a past when it's messed up? What did we do? I mean, the United States government apologized for this. Right. It's public law 103-150. Under President Clinton, he apologized on the 100th anniversary of the overthrow of Hawaii. But it's all words. What do you do after the apology? And so I, I think this is really relevant um, history, not only in the standards of talking about the Great Awakening and reform movement and empire building, um, but also this idea of imperialization. And that history hasn't ended. We're still in it. And so I, I think it brings up some really great questions for students. So it's really interesting that you mentioned a lot of your listeners are from the East Coast, because you may not know this, actually history that starts in the East Coast, it starts in Boston. 
And so I, I just want to take a minute and kind of explain the specific context of the missionaries who went, but also like the broader context that they fit into. And maybe if you're a teacher or professor listening right now, it helps you to see where this might fit into what you already teach. Um, so the missionaries who went um, were immediately impacted. The immediate cause of them going was an, an Hawaiian young man named Henry Apukahaya. And Henry Apukahaya, who they don't pronounce his name correctly, can't pronounce his name correctly, that's a whole other argument, um, call him Henry Abuka. And it was pretty common for wealthy or powerful royal children to be sent away from Hawaii to become westernized. So this was already common. They would go to China. They would go to uh, the East Coast. And so we're really not sure of how Henry Apukahaya, this teenager, ends up in Cornwall, Connecticut, but he does. And eventually he will write his own book after he converts to Christianity. So that in itself is a primary source that needs to be read against the grain because he's going to tell us why he's telling these missionaries to go. And what he writes about and starts going on a speaking tour about is that you need to go speak to my people. My people are lost. Um, they're throwing babies into volcanoes, uh, which was not a common practice. So he's really kind of taking a Western view of traditional Hawaiian religious practices or taboo, like things that were off limits. Um, particular foods and gender. And he writes this book and goes on a speaking tour. Well, it's when he dies, he becomes a martyr for the cause. And now the missionaries under this new organization called, I just tend to call it for students, ABCFM, because they didn't think about marketing back then. So it's a really long name. <laughs> so it's the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And so this missionary board had been created as an auxiliary of local church culture. Uh, women were actually really key in fundraising to send missionaries, right? This was part of like a deeper spiritual um, understanding from the Bible that according to Matthew 28, you are supposed to go out into the world and to spread the gospel. So that, that's coming from a religious proselytization background. But actually the ABCFM, the very first place they decide to send missionaries is Hawaii because of Henry Apukahaya. They had talked about India and China and later they will send missionaries there, but their very first missionary expedition is to what was called the Sandwich Islands because it was discovered, that should be in quotes, you can't see me, in quotes by Captain uh, Cook. And so, right, they send these missionaries, they leave. If you like The Bachelor, it's the best story ever because these missionaries, the men are the missionaries. And they're told you have to find a wife because you have to remember too, like there are already primary sources that have come out of Hawaii and different parts of Polynesia, uh, whalers, traders, sailors talking about, oh yes, there's, you know, naked Hawaiian women, this kind of wantonness that was associated with darker skin. Um, chiefs had given their daughters as kind of um, parting gifts or uh, ways to kind of make treaties in a sense to white sailors, traders, and whalers who'd been there. So the missionary board's like, we're going to send some male missionaries, but you need a wife. 
So they're literally just going like, Hey, do you have a cousin? Do you have a friend? And so there was like a mass marriage ceremony on the dock right before they step on the boat to go overseas. So you're like, wait, what the heck? That sounds, what's going on? So I think that's important to remember as we talk about missionary wives, that they are going to be doing all of the work, the same types of work in many cases as missionary men, but they are not the official missionaries. They are the plus one. So to become a missionary, you have to become a wife if you're a woman at this stage. So they leave Boston, they're East Coasters, October 1819. They spend 164 days on average at sea, which sounds like pure hell to me. (laughs) Um, Many of them uh, go as newlyweds. And by the time they arrive on the shore in March, 1820 to the big island, uh, they will be pregnant. We will know from their sources that they are pregnant because they'll talk about being seasick. And you can kind of count the you count back in their diary and realize when they started to talk about being seasick, they were actually having morning sickness. Um, and over the time of the mission, they the ABCFM will send twelve different groups known as companies, so twelve different companies of missionaries. Um, so that's kind of the story. The official mission, the ABCFM run mission in Hawaii, lasts from when they arrive in 1820 until when they relinquish local control in 1863. So in 1863, they'll turn over the missionary work to Native Hawaiians who had been first or even second generation family converts. Um, so really the influence of the mission is that 1820 to 1863 period. I know that sounds like a lot of specific context and you're like, wait, is this going to be on the test? But if you pull back a little bit, what you really see is this is something that's happening within the context of the Second Great Awakening, right? The religious um, proselytization, Christian evangelical proselytization movement that's sweeping over the East Coast, right? Those burned over districts and interim preachers. These young people who are going to sign up as missionaries would have been living and swimming in that kind of culture, this kind of culture of like hell and brimstone and you better go, you only have so much time. And um, also part of moral reform movements for women, right? Women had very limited um, social opportunities to kind of clean up the domestic sphere outside of the home, right? The home is where they have influence, but outside of it. So we start to see women, right, in the decades to come, you know, opening kindergartens eventually or, you know, fighting against, um, uh, alcoholism and what we would call domestic abuse. But this is the first kind of movement of like, wait, if we're Christian in our home and we can quote, civilize our husbands, and they would even say, quote, as a protection among savages, right? Like bringing your plus one a wife is going to make sure that you don't sin. Then women start to realize, Hey, I have this niche role where I can go, I graduated from a female seminary school that had a religious background where all the male preachers and missionaries went, I can be the plus one. And maybe that will give me a platform, even though I'm simply, as Clarissa Armstrong would say, a common piece of household furniture here, right? Like I'm just something that he needed to bring along. Um, It's also one of the wives. She is a, can I cuss? She is a badass. Yeah, Clarissa Armstrong is probably, in our language, one of the most liberal progressive missionary women that went. 
Um, right. There's a whole spectrum of behavior by missionary women, and she is probably the most liberal one. Um, when her husband left Kauai Howe Church, maybe you've even been there because it's right on King Street by a lot of the historical landmarks in Honolulu. A Kauai Howe Church was where these uh, missionaries would have been. And when her husband, who was the preacher there, went to another island to preach, he left her in charge which was totally taboo. And so she is preaching on Sunday mornings. Uh, they'll let her get away with that for a small period of time because she's only doing it in his absence. But when he comes back and says, you're doing a great job and sits in the front row, all heck breaks loose. And so other missionary women actually start a campaign with a petition to get her to resign. They send it back to Boston they get word back from Boston that she is not only to step down, but she is to apologize. And she does. So she is probably the most progressive in terms of gender role and really kind of running with that uh, negotiated space that she have has. Um, this is also part of something that you might already teach manifest destiny, the idea of like a foreign frontier, right? And what will happen to the American ingenuity and spirit if there's not a frontier to quote conquer, and so Hawaii has looked at that in this view at this time. And also something called benevolent empire, right? Benevolent, kind of that religious um, understanding of like, I'm doing this for you. This is, you know, in the same way that white men were talking about kill the Indian, save the man. This is was the idea of like, this is religion and this is bringing our cultural culture over all in the same suitcase. You may not like it at first, but it's for your benefit. Like we're talking about eternal reward here. So just sit down. And so it's really part of these like broader movements, even though it is kind of this religious history, it's colonization, imperialization, gender roles, um, what to do in cross-cultural contact, and really kind of the very negative influence of this missionary work, although that was not their intention when they first went. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's also, uh, yeah, it's like, there's a lot of, I love that you're bringing in Manifest Destiny and um, even like, you know, this is industrialization. And, um, you know, I think about the need to find more people to buy our stuff that we're making. And like, <laughs> you know, like, so there's a lot of things to connect to there. Yeah. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialherstory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our history makers, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Kent. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Thank you. You guys make this show possible. Right. And to fast forward a little bit, I mean, the 
descendants of these missionaries, the children and grandchildren of these original missionaries that went, they're the ones that are going to buy land, going to start businesses, going to infiltrate the Hawaiian government into uh, different consulting positions. And right, it's the uh, tariff on sugar, right, that later Queen Liliolani is going to say, like, you can't come in this port anymore, like for sugar, even though you all want it, because you're bringing smallpox, like my job's to protect my people. And that's viewed as an act of aggression by foreign business owners, including the United States. And so although I want to be really clear that these original missionaries, there's no evidence that I've seen to date that they ever thought of their work as being this monumental. They're not thinking, you know, in a couple decades, this will be another star on the American flag. They really do have what they think are pure intentions in terms of a religious motive and in terms of quote, civilizing presence, like Americanization, blending together like, Huzzah, America, right? Buy our goods, dress our way, right? They're going to teach missionary wives, teach Hawaiian women to sew. If you go to Hawaii and you see all the beautiful quilts in the Bishop Museum, that those skills for quilting were taught by these missionary women. But the kind of... Um, the negative outcome, the unintended consequence of this kind of infiltration without cultural sensitivity really did erode and eradicate very important parts of Hawaiian civilization. Um, and that is one reason this is very controversial to study. Um, it is not a popular topic with most um, because really missionaries have been, these particular missionaries, ABCFM missionaries have been very vilified because fast forward, and it's literally those same last names overthrowing Queen Lilio Kalani. You know, maybe you've read about Lauren A. Thurston. Um, Lauren A. Thurston was the grandson of the very first, one of the very first missionary couples that landed in 1820. In fact, Lucy Thurston is the one that started that uh, campaign to get Clarissa Armstrong to sit down. So, right, like you just see all these different personalities and different interpretations of religion, different interpretations of what they would call scripture. But um, yeah, this is, is not something that's always um, looked at in a positive view. It's really hard. And I definitely understand and agree. It's really hard to separate uh, when your culture has been taken over and your country has been annexed by force looking back and going, well, I'm so glad they came, right? I do think it's like, it's just incredible that these women were brave enough to sign, like you live in Boston and you're going to go to, like I flew, I flew to Hawaii. Yeah. It took me forever to get there from Boston. What is that flight, like 14 hours? It's like, it was like, oh, and I should add that I was doing it with a baby. A, a baby. Which is pure madness. It was madness. Fun fact, infants don't do time changes. Oh, no? No, no, no. That's not a thing? That's not a thing. They can't adjust. Yeah, so, no, I learned that by going to California. So it's like... 3 2 3 a.m. in yeah, Hawaii like and my out. son is like what's up what are we doing <laughs> and breakfast is now and breakfast and is now and bedtime's at 5 <laughs> no but these women are do not have the luxuries of modern travel they are going to be taking ships to Hawaii and they're like yeah sounds good i'm leaving my family my life my Wait, so everything how do you get to Hawaii from Boston on the ship oh you go south like you have to go around yeah and i 
because there's no the Panama Canal is not a n- thing. is not a thing yet. So these women are going down and around South America. Oh my god! Yeah, they're or not like th- going towards like. No. Okay. Yeah. That's a long boat ride. That's a long boat ride. How many died? Like <laughs> there <laughs> had to be like a seafaring murderous trip. <laughs> I can't imagine. So these women are signing up in some cases to marry people that they don't know. And granted, definitions of like wife and marriage are very different in this time. It's very much like these are, this is the man who's going to provide for you more than anything else. And, um, and you're going to like serve, you know, and, and bear children and do all the, the, the mothering things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like signing up for that and going. And I think that's just fascinating. Um, yeah, it is very similar to the Virginia colony of like the British sending women over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, as I'm listening to her, I'm sitting there going, okay, I need to know what it would be like to be one of these women. Like, yeah, is there any like what does it end up? Oh, yeah. And okay. so what does it end up being like? And, and this is what she said. So one of the questions you had for me was, what was it like to be a missionary wife? What it was like to be a missionary wife really varied among women, right? There is no monolithic woman's experience. There's no monolithic gendered experience, just like there's no monolithic missionary women or wife experience. But one way I teach it to my students, because I'm always a fan of trying to make things easily digestible and memorable, is uh, the women, they were like a mop. So M-O-P, they're like a mop. And I get a little snarky sometimes because it just makes it fun, right? And personality comes out, which is like, they're there to shine it all up. They're there to clean it all up. They're not the important part. They are the cleanup crew. And so the M in MOP stands for mother. So to become a missionary wife almost meant, especially in this time in American history, but for these religious women in particular, it's going to mean becoming a mother. And these women came from very big families and they're going to have very big families. So if you're a mom like me listening, you're probably already going to be exhausted because these women had on average eight to 10 kids. It's very normal. I know. So basically what you can do, and this is pretty common in the middle of the 19th century for uh, white, um, at least middle-class women, um, is they're going to be pregnant or nursing every two and a half years for all of their childbearing years. So approximately whenever they get married to about 40 something. It's a long freaking time. Um, So Clarissa Armstrong, who I already mentioned, she had 10 children. Laura Fish Judd, her journal, you can get it on Amazon if you're interested, if you want some good nighttime reading, it's fascinating. Laura Fish Judd had eight, uh, I'm sorry, nine children. And she will write about like, I need help. I need a babysitter. I can't do all of this. And so she actually will hire native Hawaiian caretakers to help with her children. And that was very controversial at the time because you have to remember this generation of women believes in blank slate children. So why would you, in their minds, why would you bring a quote heathen around your child in the first five years of life? They're going to become that way. 
So to become a wife meant to become a mother. Uh, Lucy Thurston, who I already mentioned, uh, she will be doing a Bible study with Hawaiian women and want to keep her children away from those Hawaiian women so badly that within a wall, she built a little door and she has Hawaiian women on one side doing Bible study and her children on the other. And she will go back and forth through that door to keep them separated. So they're very different ideas about, just like now, how to be a good mom, what children need, but also these really racist infused ideas that uh, culture and race somehow rub off on your children. Um, so that that's sounds fascinating fun. Because as a teacher, you want your students to know that you like care and love them and support them. And she's literally saying to them, like, you are so heathenous that I can't bring you around my children. Yeah, she's like, BRB, I'll be right back, study that, right? And so, I mean, that has to do too, right? The whole history of science, the history of childhood at this time, right? The history of psychology and what they understand, the concept of, um, I mean, eventually this is a little bit early, but like eugenics, how your mind works tied to race, I mean, there's a lot here, right? Even though we're kind of going, oh, this is so ridiculous, a door in between two rooms. Um, and I would call that very racist, right? And not all women did that, but that is the length to which some of these missionary women would go to negotiate these multiple roles at one time. Like, how do, we, how do I be a mom and fill in the blank? Yeah. So mop. So that's M. O would be overlooked, and I would say they're overlooked then and they're overlooked now, right? It, typically, if it's not in our textbook or there's not a podcast about it, we're busy teachers and professors. We don't have time to go research everything in archives. Um, these women were accomplished in their own right. They were not just wives or plus ones. Uh, they learned the Hawaiian language. Uh, by the way, missionaries are the ones who created the written Hawaiian language, right? You go across the ocean uh, for 164 days uh, to, quote, try and save people only to realize that they have an oral tradition. How are they going to read your Bible? So these ABCFM missionaries are the ones that create the written language, start printing the Bible, bring over the first printing press on the island. Um, so they learned the Hawaiian language. They taught the Hawaiian language and the Bible, uh, they opened schools, they taught Bible studies, often, which was controversial at the time, because they will teach men. And this is a period, right, of per, like promiscuous crowds, right? Like women are supposed to be with women. And they're going to teach Hawaiian women how to sew, how to quilt. Um, they're going to be graduates of prestigious female schools. Um, they're going to help, uh, for example, example, Laura Fish Judd helped her husband, who was the doctor, with medicine. She didn't have a license at the time. She's just helping. Um, and almost like Eliza Hamilton, they're going to write their husband's records. They're going to write their stories. So I think it's important to call them wives to keep in mind of how limited they were at the time and how they were viewed, but what they actually did with that role, that opportunity on what they would call a foreign frontier was much more expansive than just being a mop. So mother overlooked. And then last one's pressured. Um, I don't know if any other mom feels like this during the pandemic, but I can relate. Um, one of the quotes that they talk about, the way that they talk about heaven is, quote, mansions of eternal blessedness. 
it almost sounds like a life game. Like, are you going to the mansions of eternal blessedness? You're like, where is it? But they really have this kind of internal perspective that life is all about the eternal. It's all about later. And so this work that you're doing is eternal importance, right? These women will write, and many of them will write in their journals, many of which have now been published, not all, um, but they'll talk about why would I do the laundry all day when I can go teach someone the gospel? Why would I do the dishes all day if I can go help a queen and get that kind of influence and spread this word? And so really they're trying to balance housework and family and missionary work. And overall that the umbrella is gendered ideas about what women are quote supposed to do. So I'll kind of wrap up with this. Lucy Thurston, she wrote home once to the ABC FM. And it almost is like a Dorothy moment from Wizard of Oz of like, you're not in Kansas anymore. She basically says, we're not in Kansas anymore. She's like, um, off the top of my head, she says, a Northern constitution cannot flourish here. This is for you East Coasters. She's like, how we were back there, you wouldn't last a day here. It's, it won't work. How do you fill in the blank? How do you not have caretakers in your home? Like how, how would you get the laundry done? How would you do these things? So she talks a lot about almost in a sense, apologizing or trying to appease critics of like, you know, woe is me. I may be this role, but you don't know what it's like. And so there's a lot of pressure from all different sides. And that's what my research focused on was the double bind that these missionary women felt that simultaneously they could never win. They could never fully appease the ABCFM board and all the directives of what they were, quote, supposed to do and live up to their own aspirations and their own interpretations of what Christianity meant to them. Right. If you're reading about a Jesus in the Bible, and this is historical to this time, I'm not talking about now, but if you're reading in the Bible there, like you better go tell people. And then you have a missionary board that says you are to be an example, a vivifying and um, exquisite example of the virtue that Christianity imparts on the female character, a.k.a. stand there, look pretty and just look Christian, I suppose. I don't know how that works. And so, right, these, these women are constantly trying to negotiate, but never fully appeasing one side or the other. They live in this limbic space as a mop, as a mother who's overlooked and pressured, but also doing missionary work. That's a really, I like your uh, mop. You like mops? Yeah, I like the, <laughs> the language, t- like, you know, bit there. I think that's a really great way um, and probably a lot of women in history felt like moms, um, but especially women on the frontier and in even um, even in Hawaii, which is funny, you know, like obviously that's the frontier. I would I have such a Western centered yes. vision of what frontier means. Um, and that is a West. Let's be honest, right? That's a, a Western centric way to talk about it, right? In the same way that uh, Native and Americans, Indigenous people here were not discovered, nor too were Hawaiians sitting there going, "Oh, great, we are our frontier. Who will come?" Like they had their own language, their own traditions. They had their own monetary systems. They had um, affiliations of islands where the king had, you know, created different, we would call like nations. So they were civilized, um, 
right? This group is going in and saying, basically, we're going to demolish all of it. Like we will make fruitful fields and pleasant dwellings as if there weren't already those things there. Mm -hmm. So it is a very uh, Eurocentric, white Eurocentric, white Western um, view. And I want to be clear too why I keep saying white is because there was only one person of color who served on the entire ABCFM mission, the official mission. Um, let's be clear, Native Hawaiians came over as like um, guides or assistants, um, but they were known as Native Hawaiians and they weren't viewed as part of like the congregational or Presbyterian church per se that was like bred through these seminaries to become missionaries, mm -hmm. um, Harvard graduates, Princeton graduates. Um, there was one woman and she was a black woman who came over single and her name is Betsy Stockton. And uh, there's a lot of work to do on her. Um, if I were in grad school now and had the time, this is probably where I would put my effort is to researching her. Um, Betsy Stockton uh, was born in 1798. And she went over as a single woman who was a teacher. But because she was Black, she had to go as almost, I guess the word would be a charge or like a ward of a white man who was the official missionary and his wife. And she was to help with the housework and to help with the children, but then she could also be this educator on the side. She was a formerly enslaved woman who was owned by the president of Princeton University, Ashbel Green. So it's been really interesting. I would say maybe in the last 10 years, uh, Princeton's been doing a lot of kind of its own soul searching and work about its legacy with slavery. And here you have this connection right there to like a prominent institution of this woman. She never got married on the mission. Uh, some women, single women were sent over to be replacements. So if a woman, if a wife died on the mission field, you as a man either had to go back to the mainland, find a wife and come back, or often what the ABCFM did was sent over single women who wanted to be missionaries. And it's like, here's your bachelor paradise moment. And it's like, pick one. And, but Betsy Stockton wasn't sent over there, right? And that's race too. She's not sent over to become someone's wife because she's black. Um, and so there's a lot of research to do there about like, well, how did she get free and how did she feel about her freedom? How did she feel about um, the way in which she was treated? Um, she was very well respected and ended up becoming an educator in Princeton and Philadelphia. But she that's why I continuously say, right, we're really talking about white, Eastern specific denominations in Christianity. It's our, our history needs to be specific, right? Place and time. And so that's part of our, this location for our studies. Yeah. So I would love to know a little bit about, um, you know, indigenous um, perspectives of people that were there. If, if you came across some of that, um, you've talked a bit about, you know, how these people are coming in to um, transform this society that's already pretty robust. And I would love to know more about what's there. I think that's a great way to kind of view this work, right? Even when we're kind of stuck or focusing on a specific group, it's always important that we pull back for the broader view of who was already there 
how did they relate cross-culturally and, and what were reactions of people who had already made, as we've talked about, a culture, um, had their own religious traditions, their own monarchy, so on and so forth. Um, the reception really varied, and I want to be very honest. I think it's important that historians do um, that. I'm very limited in this area because I don't speak native Hawaiian. So when I was in grad school many, many years ago, um, there were no apps to learn language and there was no online school for that. Um, I don't even think there was online school. So I remember calling, I know, I remember calling the University of Hawaii and asking, how do I learn the Hawaiian language? And they said, well, come here. And I said, well, that's not really possible for me. Um, so what I have read about Native Hawaiian reaction, I want to be clear, is from an interpreted standpoint. Even if it's a primary source, it's been interpreted into English. Um, I don't read or write Hawaiian. Um, Part of the reception varies um, if we think of it as a spectrum. Uh, the king, uh, King Liho Liho, uh, also known as Kamehameha II, um, he is, is the, ki the king at the time when the missionaries land in March of 1820. And I guess in, we could say he kind of sees the writing on the wall and he's very skeptical when they land. Um, he places them on probation. He monitors them closely. He denies their request for land, like permanent land, um, realizing that land is power. And it's also, once it's given away, you can't always get it back easily. Um, so he will give them a very small track of land and say, you all have to live together. Um, so if you've been to Honolulu or if you're interested, it's called the Mission Houses, the Mission Houses Museum, the Mission Houses Archive. Um, that is why all the original families, the seven uh, white uh, couples who went, not the four Hawaiian young men who went with them, but the seven, so there's 14, make me do math. Um, there's 14 of them. They're all going to live in the same house and they each will have their own room and you can tour that house. So right then we already see gendered notions starting to break down. Like how are you domestic when suddenly you're living in a small room and you're basically living in a co-op, right? And so the women start negotiating, like who's going to do laundry and who's going to watch kids. Um, so Liho Liho really was kind of representative of the Hawaiian population that was very skeptical, that saw, right, like 40 some odd years before, you have Captain Cook and his men kidnapping a king. And so that's like recent memory. So they're like, we're not too sure about these white people coming and what they're selling. So we're just going to keep them at arm's length. Um, on the other side, I would say of like official Hawaiian reception would be uh, Queen Ka'amanu. And she's actually a co-regent. We might use the word like co-queen. So she is actually ruling at the same time as King Liho Liho. And she was the um, favorite wife of Kamehameha I's many wives. And she had a lot of political power. So she's a very powerful, influential uh, Native Hawaiian woman. She's, I mean, if you think about it right here, I hadn't really crossed my mind before this. Really, we're talking about two sides of a coin, and it's also like two sides of this particular monarchy. Uh, there are many different chiefs and chiefesses um, and ali'i, which means like powerful, influential people, but they really are the head. And one side saying, oh, no, no, keep them at arm's length. And Queen Kamea, or I'm sorry, Queen Kahamanu uh, welcomes the missionaries, particularly the women. Uh, she learns skills from them, like sewing. Uh, she talks about enjoying spending her time with them. 
like socializing. Um, and she, according to uh, Laura Fish Judd's uh, journal, Laura Fish Judd wrote, quote, she treated us like pet children. And she'll write about how she was, uh, quote, always in her lap, that this um, kind of assuming very large Hawaiian woman was constantly kind of picking up these like frail uh, white missionary wives who are up to their necks in Victorian clothing and kind of just, you know, moving them around. And um, but I think that's within that spectrum, there's lots of different reactions in between. Um, and to my knowledge um, and from my own research, right, people fall along that spectrum there of how they feel about the missionaries coming. That's a really cool. I have enjoyed learning about the monarchy. And I do think it's really neat that women ruled. Do you know why she was co-regent with her husband? Like why, like? So if we kind of backtrack a little bit right before, and this is really context for when the missionaries arrive in March of 1820, uh, Kamehameha I, who had solidified power over um, all of the Hawaiian islands and became like the king. We would probably use that term, right? But he's he's the head chief. But King Kamehameha I, um, he died a couple months before they arrive. And so his heir is Liholiho, his son, who then is called Kamehameha II. Well, Queen Kaamanu was very powerful in her own right, but she was also a really big advocate for abolishing the kapu system. And kapu is just a, a Hawaiian word for taboo. So there was a lot of, under Kamehameha I, there was a lot of religious practice and social practice that had to do with keeping the gender separate. So there were many things that women could not do. Uh, there were foods that women could not eat, like coconut or banana or certain kinds of pig. Um, and it was thought it was those foods were associated with the gods. So the thought of a woman eating them somehow made her more powerful. So it was a really a way to kind of create this, we would like a feudal society or a hierarchy. Um, and uh, Queen Ka'amanu, as his favorite wife, when he passed away, kind of just let it rip and was like, we need to get rid of all of this. Like he died, there's new position in power. And really by abolishing the kapu system, when it ends, it leaves a religious void. So it creates space for native Hawaiian women it creates space for something, a new religious understanding to come in. And then here comes this like ship full of like overly eager seminary graduates, right? Who are like, hey, we, we have the answer for you. Um, as to why she was his favorite, I haven't done that research. Um, he had many wives, which was very common. And she will actually rule with two of them. So she will rule with Kamehameha II, who is Liholiho, and Kamehameha III. Um, and then she passes away. So she really kind of makes a space for herself. And I think one of the questions you had asked of, you are familiar with Queen Livio Kalani from the end of the 19th century, but she was the only one who's like a Polynesian woman in, in many state standards. And I really think Queen Ka'amanu would be a, a really great look to kind of look at the 19th century as two different bookends of like where women kind of start and where they kind of go. Um, she really had a lot of power at a time in which it was just coming into its own for native Hawaiian women to be viewed as godlike, 
to be viewed as like, so for example, one of the things she would do, right? We call this like civil disobedience now. It's like, she would just go around eating a banana. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really look at banana, like eating a banana as like a work of social activism, but that's what she did to break that particular kapu. And I kind of my interpretation of it would be the more she started to do these things after her husband died, it was like, wait, she ate the banana and nothing happened. Right. And so just eat the banana. I think that could be on our bumper stickers. Also, like if you were in Hawaii, I feel like being denied bananas and coconut would be like the worst thing. And taro. Taro is like um, a traditional Hawaiian food um, and it's grown there. Right. And and made many dishes are made from it and they were not allowed to eat that. So I kind of support just like eating things as an act of social resistance and probably should host that Zoom. (laughs) Like, what is that for us now, right? Like, what are we not having because society tells us not to? Um, And so, yeah, she she kind of not only warmly received them, but she would be a really great further study. Uh, There are sketches of her, there are secondary sources of her, and there are primary sources primarily written by missionary women. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm really grateful to like add another person to to know um, to my to my list. And uh, of course, the names of these missionary wives, I'm jotting them all down over here. So, (laughs) And I would say too, um, maybe just a little bit of encouragement. I remember when I first started writing in grad school, and I would go to conferences, and I was really and I think rightfully so insecure about saying some of these names, because I've always struggled learning language. Um, I was made fun of in high school for not speaking language correctly when I was learning. And I don't speak native Hawaiian. And it's a very, you know, linguistically challenging, at least to me, um, language. And without formal training, it really felt like colonizing language. And so one of the things I did, I mean, now we have videos, but back then we didn't, is do the research and listen to someone pronounce it. Or what I would do is I called the Bishop Museum many times and whatever that is for you with what you're teaching. I called the Bishop Museum. I asked for a docent, right? A volunteer, someone who's very eager to tell what they know. And I said, hi, I'm writing a paper on this. Could I practice saying this name with you? And I remember having to say Ka'amanu like 20 times and I probably still don't say it correctly. But that knowledge is out there. But I think if we as educators are honest in what our limitations are and tell our students, then that gives them the permission to start practicing and trying new things too. None of us know it all or pronounce everything correctly. And we're kind of gatekeeping when we go around correcting everyone. So yeah, these native Hawaiian words and their spellings can be very challenging, um, but practice makes better. Yeah, I think that's a really great message. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in class I've come across a name and I've been like, um, <laughs> you know, and even even names that you would think are are sort of like white European or something, I still struggle with. So. Right. Oh, okay. So, um, what would you say? is like the most important takeaway that you have from your research? I really appreciate that question about the most important takeaway because I think in anything we're learning about, even if it's just to make our own curriculum or to write a dissertation or a book or even just something you're posting on social media, there's always 
immediate implications and then broader implications. So I think the immediate implications uh, is understanding that women have always found subversive ways to negotiate prescribed gender roles, although their success and impact of doing so has varied widely. So I think you can kind of take that and, and look across the board at these different women who came in the 12 companies. There wasn't one way to be a missionary wife. They weren't all rooting for Clarissa Armstrong or building doors like Lucy Thurston. Um, and this is why I think as history educators, we often tell our students that's oversimplified, right? It's complicated. Um, but I think a broader implication is thinking about how gender now and has always been a cultural and social construct. Like what it means during this period of time, what it means for these particular um, Christian women, what it means to be masculine or feminine is very much rooted in their own religiosity and the time period and their, their standing as white women from America. Um, right. It's not that long ago that women were put in jail for wearing bathing suits that showed shoulders or not allowed to come in court in pants. And so I think this is kind of, if you have the luxury of teaching that, like I do in college is trying to open students eyes that gender in many ways is a cultural construct. So what is it now? Like, how can you eat that banana now? And really kind of thinking about harmful ways in which NGOs, like non-government organizations, including missionaries, like how that work should be done so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, right? We don't go in like these ABCFM missionaries and change the laws in these villages and say, you can't come to church unless you are dressed like this. And it was Victorian clothing in the humidity of Hawaii, right? Or you can't go surfing because you're lazy. So you're going to take your surfboard, break it in half and come to our schools. I think there's like broader implications to really think through how do we serve in a world that needs service, right? There are still people in our, our world that don't have fresh water, but how do we do that in a way that is culturally sensitive and mutually beneficial, and an example that comes to mind, in fact, I was just listening to another podcast, is Father Gregory Boyle, who is a Catholic a priest, and he started service in Bolivia. And he's the founder of maybe you've heard of Homeboy Industries. They have salsa and foods, and they're right here in L.A. where I am. And he talks about that when you enter a culture, you should go to blend in. You don't go to change other people. You go to blend in to where no, you go to live, just go to live among them and help them how you can. Right. And so I think this gives us a broader framework to talk about how do we do service? Because it's not black or white of like, oh, well, we shouldn't help anyone because we're colonizing. I don't think that's true because we are in a very affluent country. We have a lot of wealth, even some of the poorest among us. Like we have a lot to share, but how do we do that in a way that doesn't colonize and erase and subjugate and diminish what already exists somewhere else? Because that's beautiful too. So, as she was talking, I was starting to realize that some of the chronology was blurring a little bit there for me. Okay. So I asked her to put it in order because there are also, and this is something that I, I imagine a lot of U.S. history teachers would, would teach about, um, there are pineapple, 
plantations there, which is where the United States actually gets a lot of our pineapple and our sugar. And those plantations, in some cases, were being run by American businesses. Oh. And, um, and then, of course, these missionaries are coming over for Christian purposes. And, um, and then, of course, the United States is interested in Hawaii for, like, military purposes. Yeah. And... So, so timeline wise, yeah, put all those things in order for me. And anyway, so this is what she said. Okay. So the order, I love this. I feel like it's like on a final exam. So the order, <laughs> right. The, or if you're talking about Eurocentric white influence, it would start with Captain Cook and the British. Yeah. And then it would be whalers, traders, and merchants, right. Kind of that economic, but that's coming and going by the way, that's like, killing the whale, getting the sandalwood and leaving. It's not permanent settlement. And then it's missionaries. Uh, The first missionaries there were actually Catholic. The next group of missionaries are the ones we're talking about, which are evangelical Christian. So specifically uh, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Dutch Reform. And then the LDS, the Latter-day Saint missionaries come after. And right around that time, so if you think... um, smack dab in the middle of the 19th century. So about 1850, 1860, as this mission is kind of ramping down, that's when you have the second generation of missionary children and foreign influence staying, right? So they've grown up and now they're going to stay and go get a little plot of land and they're going to decide to grow fill in the blank. You also have other um, business people and farmers coming in at this time, right? The Japanese are gonna come in later, but right, it's the descendants of these missionaries who stay and kind of start influencing laws to say foreigners can own land, right? Foreigners can own land, okay, that gets passed. Great, now foreigners can own land. Uh, Foreigners don't have to pay like foreign taxes, right? Like we can just, we're native Hawaiians, we're gonna sell it as if we're native Hawaiians. So just starting to recreate the Hawaiian government in their own image, and making it beneficial for them. And yeah, um, Sanford, Sanford B. Dole, maybe that sounds familiar, the cousin, um, right, of eventually what becomes the Dole Empire. They're gonna have a lot of land and power. And Sanford B. Dole helps to overthrow the Hawaiian government under Queen Lilo Kalani. Right. So I have been to Hawaii a couple times. I have not done the pineapple tour yet. I'll probably be a total bummer to go with because it's sad. It's sad to me. You're like, woohoo, Dole Whip. I'm like, woohoo, colonization and eradica- eradication of a, a, a native culture. Right. Like the idea of what it means to be Hawaiian now is so politicized and wrapped up because Hawaii has become a state. Right. And so there's a lot of different influences at the end of the 19th century. You have the Spanish-American War. The United States was very happy that they had Pearl Harbor, not thinking fast forward ahead to World War Two. So that idea of like foreign English influence coming but going like trading and leaving, then permanent settlement through missionaries. Um, and then right around the end of that is like, we're going to stay and we're going to like build it how we want. And then fast forward. Yeah, we're going to get this queen out of here. Like she's a problem. She's closing ports. And right after that, it's, oh, well, this is really convenient because with imperialization, the Spanish-American War, 
right? Um, trick question. Hawaii is the only acquisition at the end of the 19th century that wasn't through war. It's not a spoil of the Spanish-American War. It was taken under the cloak of the Spanish-American War, a huge distraction. Hmm. That's fascinating. Thank you for like talking me through that chronology because I I feel like it's like fragments in in my understanding rather than like a clear storyline. Yeah, and that's that bit to the beginning because I imagine there's others that are similar sure. to me. And that's where you can start to think about, well, how would I how would I do this in my class? I have so much to teach. Um, but maybe if you're teaching the Spanish-American War, you throw in a little activity about uh, the, the pineapple plantations and who's working on the pineapple plantations at the end of the 19th century and where are they getting their water and how are the Japanese treated and you know who's selling it and profiting off of what were indigenous native Hawaiian lands. And so those things will kind of open up bigger, broader conversations, which you could even relate to today about climate change, about the stealing of water, like happens here in California, water's stolen from central California and comes right here to Los Angeles. So you could start to bring in those more thinking project-based questions by introducing a very brief conversation. And I'm sure there are videos online or a very quick tutorial about like, well, what would you have done? How do you think this should be happening? What do we do now that there's a um, Hawaiian sovereignty movement? There has been since Hawaii uh, was taken over. And so what do we do? Do we give Hawaii back? Do we, right? Like, what is that conversation? And it's really nuanced and I'm glad I don't have to figure it out, but I work with my students and, and we explore those conversations of what does it mean to write American history? Not to rewrite it, it is what it is, but how do we make it right? And how do we harm the least amount of people in making it right again? But um, the UN flag is flown there in Hawaii. If you've been there, maybe you've seen like Howie's go home on someone's uh, bumper sticker or billboard, or you see the American flag flying upside down, which is a sign of a nation in distress. Do you see the UN flag flying? What they're saying is we were illegally taken over. The U.S. government already admitted it in 1993. So what's going on? So as we sit here as a nation and we talk about democracy and freedom, this very moment, we are still holding a people, right? We can go to the uh, Queen Kahamanu shopping center, which is a real thing, but many of us don't even know this history. And we don't think twice when we decide to fly over. So we're going to put a lesson up on our website, though, that gets at this history, at the women who ventured off into sort of this unknown and had really rich interactions with Native Hawaiian women prior to U.S. You know, military interest in this area. Yeah. And it gives, you know, like I've said at the beginning, it gives that context to the Hawaiian people before the U.S. is really there. And there is, you know, because there is so much to know about Hawaii prior to the United States. And like most indigenous people, you know, that sort of gets erased in U.S. history. Yeah, until we 
white people come up against that. Right, <laughs> right. And granted, these are missionaries, but in a lot of cases, they're helping to to make records of yeah. that real that that Hawaiian history. And so, um, and so, I think that's that's really important. Absolutely, very interesting to read about. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Kelsey. This was a good one. <laughs> oh, thanks, Brooke. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.